Mobile drivers showed a fine, independent spirit. Look out, ladies. The Outline World Dispatch. It's Tuesday, November 14th, 2017. I'm Aaron Edwards. Today on the show, Gabby Del Valle on why it's okay to report on mass shooters by name. And Anne Derek Gaillot talks to Montana's first black mayor since 1873. Here's the dispatch. Power. As mass shootings become more frequent, a number of organizations have begun urging law enforcement officials and reporters to deflect attention away from shooters, focusing instead on their victims. The idea is that shifting attention to victims and survivors will prevent the contagion effect, or copycat shootings inspired by media coverage of past shooters. Gabby Del Valle is here to talk about the case for reporting their motives and using their names. Hi, Gabby. Hi, Aaron. On November 5th, Devin Patrick Kelly killed 25 people at a small Baptist church in Sutherland Springs, Texas. What was the reaction like to that, and how was the reporting on the shooter handled? So generally, after a mass shooting, media outlets will refer to the shooter by name. They will go into his background, see any possible motives for this, look through social media. And local law enforcement in Sutherland Springs said that at a press conference that they were not going to refer to him by name. What I can tell you is today the autopsy was performed on the shooter. And if you notice, I use shooter instead of the suspect's name. We do not want to glorify uh, him and what he's done. They said they didn't want to glorify what he had done and that they didn't want other people to commit similar acts inspired by this particular shooter. So I just want to commend the commander from DPS for not mentioning the shooter's name. Uh, we certainly don't want to glorify what has happened there. There's a couple of campaigns out there. One is called Don't Name Them, where we don't talk about the shooter. We don't see his name out there in the press. So it doesn't encourage other people to do horrific acts like this. So instead of referring to him by his full name or just calling him Kelly, they referred to him as the shooter. And this was a request from local law enforcement for people to not use his name? They weren't telling other people not to use his name, but there is a growing movement that is partially spearheaded by survivors of mass shootings to refrain from using the names of shooters in their media coverage, to not use photos of them, to not publish their manifestos or their social media posts. Should the news media name mass shooters? Should the media, should we at CNN show their faces? And more than anything else, this stems from the 24-7 news cycle that that needs to be constantly filled with something. What are the main arguments that these groups and families are using when they say, don't use these people's names? The primary argument is that after mass shootings, there exists what call, what is called a contagion effect, which is basically that other people, other would-be shooters, could be inspired by the coverage that the killer is receiving and the attention and notoriety and could go on to commit a similar shooting. Um, there's also the argument that that we as reporters are making these shooters famous, we're making them household names, when attention should be focused on victims and on people who help stop the shooting, if there are any, on how the community is handling the effects of the shooting, and that purely sensationalized coverage of these shooters is detrimental. This reminds me a lot of the Boston Marathon bombing and how Rolling Stone in particular 
was a good example of how framing is also really important when we're talking about how to report on not just mass shootings, but this was uh, a tragic event. Uh, that cover kind of portrayed him as a rock star a little bit. Like the, the piece was great, but the, the yeah. framing was bad. So the cover was just a picture that the younger of the two brothers involved in the bombing had taken of himself and Rolling Stone put that on the front cover. And it was accompanying what was a really interesting piece on the younger brother, how he slowly became radicalized. But when you put people on magazine covers, it's generally because you're celebrating them. But the Rolling Stone cover is different than what you're describing about actually reporting on individuals and their names and their motives. Yeah. When I think of refraining from reporting on, for example, Killer's Manifesto, I think if you, Dylan Roof's manifesto was dug up by two writer, two freelance writers who were like, what, what kind of dirt can we get on this guy? Like, what can we find? And they found this really long, hateful, racist manifesto where he said, I'm going to kill these people because they're black. This was explicitly said in this manifesto. And without it, we don't know what his defense could have done. I mean, reporting on that is in the public interest. Isn't reporting on shooters' names and their motives newsworthy? There's a lot of disagreement on that. I spoke with Diana Hendricks, who's the communications director for Don't Name Them at Texas State University. It's one of the groups that's trying to get media organizations and reporters to stop saying mass shooters' names and their coverage and to not use their likenesses or publish their social media posts or manifestos. And what she told me was that when a shooter is still at large, that reporting on their name and their likeness is in the public interest because it can help them be caught. But once they're caught, the focus should no longer be on that person. You know, if he was still on, if he was still out and loose, it's important. And we're never saying don't, don't name the killer. We're saying don't give him airtime and don't use your valuable airtime and ink on this person. Give that to you in writing. Use that information. But we're encouraging you to look at other stories about this. Look at the other parts of this. Look at the people who are fixing it. But I think then the problem isn't how... The problem isn't reporting on mass shootings. It's this style of journalism where that requires a constant influx of new information that can apply to anything, not just mass shootings. What the president said yesterday, what the president said today, anything. Right. So maybe we can collectively get to a, a bit of a final word on this. My perspective on it is that there are many ways that news organizations can do both. You can report effectively and accurately on a shooter, including their name where it's relevant, and speaking about the minutia of a developing story that's in the public interest, while also putting a focus on victims, survivors, and families, ways to help, and things of that nature. What would your sort of final word on this be? Yeah, I completely agree. And I also think that the issue at hand isn't necessarily certain media organizations handling of mass shootings, but their handling of the news in general. And that everyone who is a reporter should always try to be more thoughtful about what they're doing, should always strive to be more careful in their reporting, even and especially in instances like mass shootings or other 
large-scale acts of violence when there is so much at play and when you have to take into account that certain people can and will be re-traumatized by your coverage of an event. Thanks, Gabby. Thanks, Aaron. Gabby Dovaya is a staff writer here at The Outline. In 1994, Wilmot Collins was a 31-year-old refugee who had resettled in Montana after escaping civil war in Liberia. 23 years later, Collins and his wife have raised two children in Helena, where he works for the state's Child Protective Services and acts as a regional advocate for refugees. But last week, he also made history. On November 7th, Collins was elected mayor of Helena, Montana, beating incumbent James Smith, who'd held the position for 16 years. In winning the city's election, Collins became the state's first black mayor since E.T. Johnson in 1873. With African Americans comprising only 0.6% of the population, Montana is America's least black state. Outline staff writer Anne Derek Gaillot called up Collins the day after the election. They talked about falling in love with Montana and Collins' journey to becoming its first black mayor in more than a century. So, is that designation significant to you? You know, um, I didn't think I, I didn't think about it before, but now thinking about it, yeah, mm-hmm. it is. Because you know, uh, man, the, the 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 national media have gone crazy with this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it it's it's finally hitting home that wow, this could be something. Um, did the issue of race in Montana come up while you were campaigning? You know, we had the the last Confederate fountain in the Pacific Northwest in Helena. A lot of people, you know, I did a lot of door knocking. And that the, the, the mayor and the commissioners decided to take the Confederate fountain down. And when I went around knocking, most people wanted, to, wanted my opinion or my view on the fountain issue. Mm-hmm. I say, you know, two years ago, um, I was one of those that decided not to remove the fountain. I told people, I told the commissioners and the mayor at the time, let's put a a plaque up explaining our history to our kids and grandkids. Let's not, we had a dark past, but we can move forward. So let's explain what the Confederate fountain is about. And two years later, they didn't. And then what happened in Charlottesville? And when we realized that this was the last fountain in the Pacific Northwest, and part of my platform was talking about the teenage, the increase in teenage homelessness, I just thought this would have been a breeding ground for the, for the different supremacists and nationalists coming here, gathering around the fountain, recruiting our homeless teens, and when they had a public hearing again, I went there and said, you know, at this time, um, I'm in for the removal of the fountain for the safety of this community because, and eventually it was removed the very next day. Over the past year in the U.S., uh, racist and xenophobic rhetoric has become more and more public and more and more out there. Did that play into your consideration to run it all? Oh, you know, I was just trying to do something in my little community. 
I listened to the call and I was trying to do it. But now I see that it's bigger than what I had intended. Well, Mr. Collins, I'm a new Montanian. Um, I'm black. I just moved to Missoula in July. Oh. Yes. And before I moved here, I was really hesitant because I know Montana does not have a large black population. So I was kind of nervous about like finding community. What would you have told me, the me before I moved to Montana? I would have told you, Anne, moving to Montana, it's a beautiful place. It's a beautiful state, but you must have thick skin. Why is that? Because <clears throat> people tend to get pretty bold about how they feel, and they they uh, they don't know how to. They're not tactful about it. Like, how has your perception of Montana changed over the two decades you've been here? You know, I'll tell you. Uh, when I first came, I, I battled with some crazy racist stuff. Mm-hmm. People mark my home with KKK, go back to Africa. But they, you know, the unique thing about what happened after was what kept me here, kept me and my family grounded, was the fact that my neighbors got together and washed my wall down. When people tried to um, hurt, I mean, burn my car, they were out there watching out for us. Now, you know, you can experience racism anywhere and almost everywhere in America, but would you be able to get the response or the reaction that I got or the solution that I got? That's far and few in between. Thank you so much, Mr. Collins. No, thank you. that's it for the dispatch thanks so much for listening as always you can find more episodes of the show and our other podcasts at theoutline.com slash podcasts i'm aaron edwards we'll be back tomorrow with more stories 